Welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. Today we have uh, Frank Piccarillo. He's a naturopathic medical student going to the lovely school NUNM, which I just recently graduated from. Um, me and Frank have been friends for a bit of time. We've been talking about doing this episode and talking about uh, sacred plant medicine, shamanism, the placebo effect, um, and many other great things. So how did you get into the healing path? Like what originally got you interested in practicing natural medicine? So uh, for people who aren't uh, aware, NUNM to the National University of Natural Medicine, it's uh, one of the largest in the country schools uh, graduating naturopathic doctors who are actually licensed in, uh, in many states. Um, but the foundation of it is based on natural healing. So what brought you into the natural healing path? I know you had a very interesting journey getting into it. Uh, not exactly a hundred percent typical. Yeah. Well, I guess first I want to say thank you for having me on here. It's a pleasure and uh, congratulations on graduate, man. It's wonderful. Thank you. It feels great. That same day. Yeah, I'm sure. And um, you know, it's wonderful to be a student at NUNM. It, Definitely, I would say I might have had an atypical journey getting there, but I think there isn't really a typical journey that draws one towards that kind of profession. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I originally, I guess, got into the world of medicine and um, plant medicine, supplements, biohacking, I guess you could even say through um, what I realized to be some uh, pathologies or... Um, you know, physical maladies and mental and emotional maladies that I had mm -hmm. that I knew I wanted to work out if I needed to move forward in my life. So mm -hmm. um, there was, you know, physical motivation, emotional, medical to treat myself. And then when you see that an effective treatment, whatever it is, um, you know, you feel kind of compelled to share that with others around you, you know, because you're like, wow, this, this worked. This is a beautiful solution potentially to some of the problems that the world is facing. Um, and yeah, in general, I think um, from what I've gathered that naturopathic medicine should represent um, is a beautiful new paradigm in medicine where I think our, the system is headed towards. And I'm excited to be a part of that whole shift. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it originally, um, I guess, got inspired when I was in college, you know, trying to... Um, trying to bring my brain capacity up to its highest focal point so I could be best in school in life for it. And then um, later down the road, realized I was having some physical issues, a lot of muscle and back pain, mm. uh, and then was diagnosed with spondylolisthesis, great word, which really just means your sacrum is slipping off your lumbar and your spine. Mm -hmm. um, and that was causing me chronic pain. Getting the diagnosis for it was freeing and weird in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. I also had a fracture on my L5 and how do I treat that sustainably? You know, in our conventional medical paradigm, there really wasn't much. I saw a chiropractor. He was like, you have this, there's no curing it. Um, and even in our naturopathic school, um, I remember in anatomy when they brought up spondylolisthesis, there was no cure. Um, mm -hmm. However, I think from whatever techniques I have utilized over the past six months, I have gotten to a place where even my chiropractor says like you might not fit the bill or the statistical criteria for spondylolisthesis anymore. Mm. Um, so yeah, I got a lot of value <clears throat> through different learning about different herbs, supplements, 
um, and what our world would define as drugs right now that truly helped my progression both mentally, emotionally, and physically. And that's what mm -hmm. drew me towards realizing I want to share this with everyone and fully learn the mysterious nature of the human form. Mm. So we're talking now about uh, sacred plant medicines, uh, uh, medicines mm -hmm. that have been used, you know, for thousands, perhaps even longer uh, years for uh, giving guidance, inducing visions and, and healing people on a psycho-spiritual level. It's yep. interesting now. So there's a lot of uh, new research going on around psilocybin and there's on previous podcasts, I had guests on where we talked about the new initiatives uh, mm. of getting psilocybin on the ballot as a uh, medical treatment for mm. you know, depression, anxiety, PTSD, et cetera. It actually is on the ballot from what I understand. So that, mm. that's a nice step forward. But in general, I think this field of uh, using these plant medicines for healing is so important right now because the fundamental illnesses of our time seem to be more psycho-spiritual. Like yeah. modern medicine seems to have figured out most things like can, you know, preserve mm -hmm. life. You get in an accident, you have some severe disease. There's an answer for, it's not necessarily, you know, the ultimate answer, the best answer in many cases. Right. It has some answer for the physical body, but for the mind and spirit, we are probably, we have less knowledge about how to treat the mind and spirit in some ways mm -hmm. than maybe was known thousands of years ago where that, you know, separation wasn't present. Yeah, I completely agree in that, in that, you know, modern medicine does have the capacity to treat what we wholly understand about the body, which is, I think, um, a small fraction of what we really are. A lot of us is, in my opinion, energetic form, which uh, translates into a physical form and has a emotional and mental uh, interface between the two. Uh, and what we understand about it, I think, is very limited. And so our scope of how we treat that is limited. And I think that's largely held back by the dogmatism that is in science right now. Um, you know, it is everything has to be proven with a double blind placebo controlled experiment, which is beautiful that we have a system like that. But it becomes dogmatic to a extent because, um, you know, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack or something like that. What's the, mm -hmm. yeah, evidence right, of, sense. yeah. Um, so, you know, lack of evidence is not an evidence that it's not there. So because we cannot fully explain how our emotional or energetic body translates to physical pathology, that doesn't mean it doesn't. Uh, and I think we are seeing a zeitgeist right now where we're starting to accept that plant medicine can translate to immense and uh, potent physical healing and mental healing and emotional uh, and that legislation that was put forth by the Oregon Psilocybin Society, I think is very um, transformative and uh, a beautiful progression, in my opinion. Um, for those of you who are not, I'm not sure the listener uh, profile right now, but psilocybin right, is the active ingredient in uh, magic mushrooms, so it is vernacularly called. And over the past, 10 or so years, there's been a, what uh, people have described as a psychedelic renaissance mm -hmm. um, or the new revolution of psychedelics um, in opening up to what are the medical, what's the medical value in these plants or the substances, mm -hmm. you know, some of them are synthetic actually. Um, 
And how do we then prove to the medical institution with double blind placebo controlled experiments that these medicines can work? Uh, and that's proven difficult, but there are some amazing people out there like Robin Carthart Harris and, you know, Stan Groff back in the day and Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, who are trying to piecemeal all of these different ideas together into some sort of proof that, uh, yes, these medicines are valuable in the medical context. Mm. And um, there there's a lot of research coming out that there is some efficacy for them. Like uh, we were talking a little bit before about um, uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapies and some new research that's coming around uh, on psilocybin therapies and also uh, ketamine therapies. Um, and they are actually finding some pretty uh, remarkable results in terms of treating uh, conditions that are thought to be untreatable, like, you know, major depression that doesn't respond to any antidepressants uh, PTSD that's very severe. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating too, because from what I've heard and read, there's a big interest even within the medical model for these therapies. So there's, it seems that a lot of the reason why psychedelic, uh, research kind of went underground is because of the federal regulations and, mm -hmm. you know, the war on drugs. Whereas, you know, during the, like, you know, late sixties, early seventies, every psychiatrist wanted to see like, what is this like magical thing that apparently, you know, heals people from like major depression from a few yeah. uses or, or certain things like that. Um, and even in today's day, there seems to be a wide interest and curiosity, even among the conventional medicine in terms of, you know, psychiatrists who are, you know, right. the best for their patient, because I mean, they're looking for good options. Let's be honest, yeah. man, mental health treatment in, in the conventional sphere is it's so Needs help. lacking and everyone knows it, including the people who, you know, who use those medications. Cause they see, you know, of course, antidepressants help certain people for sure. They're really helpful, right. you know, acutely for, uh, you know, but they're kind of like a little bit of a bandaid because, you yeah. know, they can help you have like the stability and the foundation to make those, uh, mentality changes, those lifestyle changes, those habit changes that can lead to health, but they know of themselves. The, the problem with any medication that you have to always take mm -hmm. is it's not really, you can't really be considered healing because you always need yeah. it. So even if you are in a I better state from agree. it, that means you're still dependent on it, which means, yeah, you know, I think that's really part and parcel of the conventional paradigm that we live in today. Um, conventional medical paradigm is that our treatment is symptomatically based and derived. Mm -hmm. So um, you can treat a condition for the moment, uh, but that's not getting to the root cause, which is another thing that really drew me to naturopathic medicine because I wasn't getting sustained treatment from any of the conventional approaches that I was given for whatever malady it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I am convinced that that is a large part of the reason that these medicines have not garnered um public or you know legitimate traction for so long because um you know how do you like i said um quantize some of these values um in a study in a double blind placebo controlled study and then the motivation for it to be used as a treatment fiscally for larger corporations and the medical institution is not there because um for instance there's one study that um, was looking at psilocybin mushrooms and depression mm -hmm. and 
they noted a variety of psychological markers and factors and how they shifted in the experimental group who received the mushrooms and they uh, or actually I think they received straight psilocybin but they uh, saw that their openness was one factor and their depression had lifted and sustained for 15 months you know on average the person who uh, the average person in that study who they checked 15 months later had still had an openness factor two times greater than what it previously mm. was. So they're open to new ideas and experiences that threaten their current view of reality, which I think is fundamental in exploring why you are in a certain emotional mm. holding pattern, right? It allows novel thought forms and neurogenesis in atypical ways. That's a, that's a really good point in terms of healing, right? So usually, you know, there's a lack of wellness or some kind of disease because of all of the many unseen factors that play into it, the deep patterns, the ways of thinking, the ways of acting, and they all kind of work together to either produce health or disease. But from within that like pattern, it's almost impossible to see it because even your idea of how you can fix it might just be part of the pattern. It might just be like another pathological expression of, uh, you know, that, that same process. So that that's a really good that point. Entirely well. the case in my to case. break from that pattern and have openness to find new solutions or new ways of acting that you would have never thought of, right? Yes, yeah, for sure. And treating my spondylolisthesis, you know, I'm a very like forward action, do things to cure yourself and move forward sort of person. Um, and ironically, what I realized in a lot of ways to relax myself and. Um, my musculature was required non-action, you know, and uh, patience in these slower modalities. But yeah, I definitely um, had a lot to say about everything you said prior. I came into this sort of discussion when I was probably a student at my original undergrad. I went to Northeastern University in Boston mm-hmm. for my undergrad I was in chemical engineering, obviously a completely different field. And uh, I lost interest in that and it didn't feel like I could serve the people correctly maybe you know making pharmaceuticals or oil didn't sit right with me but while I was there I got involved in a wonderful organization that's federally recognized called the Students for Sensible Drug Policy and uh, I was an activist in drug reform and um, it is a very polarized and hot yet important issue right now and that was in 2010 when I started the first um, psychedelic conference. So that was, we got, you know, medical speakers to come and speak about the value of psychedelics in 2010. And that's since been an annual tradition at Northeastern now. Mm. Um, But it was difficult to get $2,000 from Northeastern University to fly Rick Doblin in to talk about how LSD and mushrooms are medicine, you know, because Mm -hmm. there's this unfortunate branding that occurred when the drug war came into play. Um, And I think to separate our understanding of plant medicine and psychedelics from the political environment and the drug war is misguided because our perception of it has been branded throughout the years of the the public view, right? So Mm -hmm. I find it like obligatory for folks like yourself, you know, and I um, potentially bringing in a new hopefully a new paradigm of medical treatment um, 
to rebrand and recontextualize the medicines that unfortunately got painted as a drug when the 60s and 70s came about and people were using them irresponsibly. Mm. Now we have a lot of practitioners, even like you said, in popular culture uh, who are studying these medicines, who are finding value in these medicines, um, you know, in the scientific paradigm and placebo controlled studies and proving to the rest of the folks in that community that this isn't just hogwash conversation for those who want drugs legalized, the value in um, regulation and exploration of the capacity of these drugs is far greater than our, you know, fun to use them. Uh, that's not mm -hmm. what it's about for almost all the people mm -hmm. in the activist community that I've met. Um, and why is that? Because much of them have had valuable experiences um, as myself. And that brings even more of an impetus to feel the the need to share that, you know? Mm, that's a that's a really key thing with the the healing effects of uh, psychedelics, specifically plant medicines that have a long tradition of use. Is that something about the experience itself yes. is therapeutic and healing? So it's not there is obviously pharmacological effects and there's all sorts of differences on neuroplasticity and there's studies looking at, you know, EEGs, basically like brain scans, uh, seeing mm -hmm. that there's all sorts of different activity areas of the brain lighting up that are usually pretty dormant during waking hours, things like mm -hmm. that. Uh, so there are those effects, but at the same time, the experience of it is therapeutic uh, or can be. In the same way, I think that any kind of deep experience can be. Any kind of, uh, in traditional society, uh, like initiation rituals, different right. like rites of passage, we still have them. They're in a super watered down form now. You know, we still have yeah. birthdays and bar mitzvahs and, you know, graduations from school. Right. Boy, uh, they really represent. Where's the juice in it? Exactly. They're, they tend to be missing a lot of the original kind of archetypal force that they had yeah. in uh, where they were more a part of the culture. Now they're, they're more like remnants. They're more like remnants of an older time where they had more meaning. Um, yeah. And that's what's happened. Unfortunately, the psychedelic drug culture, um, you know, when they were originally released to the public without really an understanding of what they were. Yeah. People are going to take MDMA and go to a rave and have a great time, but that doesn't necessarily. And then the roots, didn't, the roots were taken you know, away and, and, you know, the, that became the, you know, the meme of usage that, you know, you only use these things to party or for fun, right. whereas there's this thousand, many thousand year tradition of using them for spiritual insights, for, for guidance, for transformation. And right. the, those approaches are very different too, because they involve a lot of preparatory work. Uh, they involve, you know, doing certain preparations before you ingest certain plant medicines over exactly. weeks. Sometimes they involve setting intentions. They involve intricate rituals of dance and music and chants and mm -hmm. so much more than just, you know, casually taking something and then, you know, going to a party or, you know, with, with some friends or like completely different context of usage. And I think the right. context of usage is that's where the healing effect can come in where it's used totally. in proper healing context. Yes, I completely agree. I think it is wonderfully viewed through a lens of what's happening right now in 
the PTSD and MDMA mm. studies. Uh, that was luckily one of the people that we were blessed enough to have come and speak at Northeastern in 2010 was Michael Mithoffer, the wonderful man who is the penchant and had the original guts and idea to pitch using MDMA as a therapeutic treatment to the government and try and he had to jump through a ton of hoops to try and get that as an FDA approved trial. Um, which I have many things to say about that as well, but um, yes, he is now, I think completed or in phase three of his studies. And um, what they noted was that, you know, the experience of MDMA in a therapeutic setting is far more value to pathological neuroses than going to a rave or doing it with your girlfriend. Maybe there have been, and I'm sure there, what am I saying? I'm sure that there have been, because I can vouch, um, beautiful lessons and um, transformative shifts that have happened from people using it outside of a therapeutic medical context. You know, it happens from the pharmacology of the drug itself. You don't need anything else. But when you add in that therapeutic um, context and understanding of how exactly this medicine works, it really opens up the doors for how it can be utilized as a medicine. So mm -hmm. in his study in particular, they took patients who uh, statistically met the criteria for PTSD and had them in a therapeutic um, therapist counselor session uh, using a, I think it was 200 milligram dose of MDMA. And the value was in the MDMA, but it was more so in the person's capacity or not even capacity, it opens you up to uh, vulnerability and empathy, whether mm. you're trying or not, uh, you become more vulnerable uh, under the influence of MDMA. So you can imagine the value of that in a therapeutic context, right? Uh, especially for those in PTSD. I have this traumatic event that is stored in my body, in my opinion, in my muscles somewhere. Um, I can't look at that with a therapist though, because every time I do, I start to maybe have a PTSD event. Um, and MDMA prevents that tension and allows the patient to explore what is really going on in my neuroses, my, my default mode network, uh, which is an important idea to understand about the way the brain thinks on default. What are your ruminations? And how can I walk out of this narrow paradigm of thought that I've been in? Um, mm. And that's, you know, they have now gotten to phase three studies and the numbers are mind-blowing beautiful um you know control group with placebo had i think it was 23 percent participants did not meet the statistical criterion for ptsd after their session but with mdma and a therapist uh they as opposed to just a therapist they moved to 54 percent of patients no longer for a duration of time over a year um, did not show the that they met the criteria for PTSD. So the That's experiment a solution. It was comparing uh, patients who got uh, MDMA and psychotherapy versus patients who just got psychotherapy. Yes. And okay. So okay, just got psychotherapy also got a placebo. So there's the placebo effect to work into it, which is very powerful in my opinion. Mm. And um, yeah, so that value of um, how we can redefine and explore the brain through psychedelics is 
something that, like I said, has now become a renaissance and a new a golden mm. age of psychedelics. Mm. And again, um, I think it was Stan Groff, one of the old uh, original people who was doing research in psychedelics back before it was made illegal in the 70s and 60s. Um, he had said that psychedelics are to psychology what the telescope was mm. to astronomy. Mm. Um, and I completely agree. We are having a window into how the brain works and to see for the person itself, it's valuable in that way because you can see your how your brain works without mm. the subjective layer of what you are. Um, and it's very important in our modern society because we are going through a period of time, particularly for MDMA, I'll just use as one example, where using these medicines can noticeably affect our society pretty instantly. Um, it's how many veterans, United States veterans kill themselves every day is unfortunately mind blowing. And we have a therapy out there that is now approved by the FDA, but isn't being accepted by the public because these medicines are painted in an unfortunate way. Um, you know, the amount of people dying from armed conflict is greater than that of all um, natural disasters and um, than for the past 10 years or something like that. So obviously there's value in exploring not just the physical changes that can happen, but how can we re-understand ourselves as a culture? Maybe, maybe this could shift and put more peace into our view of things, you know, and that's just one of the millions of benefits that these medicines could have. And it's mm. such a relief to see now it's like 10 years after I did that psychedelic conference, like we now have the Oregon Psilocybin Society, like you mentioned, their ballot IP 34 will be on the ballot in November. And that is to vote for the clinical therapeutic use of psilocybin in a controlled setting. So it'd be a trained practitioner. The legislation proposes that there would be a trained practitioner who is trained under Oregon and supplies mushrooms from Oregon to any person who wants to experience the medicine and does not have any health comorbidities like hypertension or schizophrenia. That's pretty much it. Uh, and they can go to the practitioner and experience this medicine legally. That would be the first place in the world to have legal use written into law. So the implications of that you know, how the United States sets the tone for uh, the drug war and drug legalization. I think that is going to be a massive shift in consciousness and perception about these substances, which will open it up to even further understanding and value. So I'm excited right. about things to come. Yeah. And, you know, those are just the, uh, the medicines and substances that we know of now. And you're right those are just the traditions that we know of now. Many have been forgotten. Many are still yet to be discovered. Uh, yeah. Many are still yet to evolve and be even created in a sense, because plants are, you know, growing and we're in a symbiotic relationship with them. So it's not oh, like yeah. they're finished. So nature is a better chemist than any human will ever be. That's right. Well, that's why that we have to use nature. Most alkaloids mm -hmm. from plants rather than make them synthetically because they it's do it way easier and easier than we can. Yeah, but, and they don't need um, much; just some light and some water. We need right? a fancy exactly. manufacturing facilities and tons of workers. And <laughs> oh yeah, 
It is so, very interesting. So and what do you think? So there's a lot of debate on these psychoactive substances, why they exist in plants. Mm. Why do you think they exist yeah. in plants? These different psychoactive compounds, certain plants have them a lot. Some have none. Mm-hmm. I think that plant intelligence is implicit in our understanding of health. Um, mm. If we really want to go further towards truth, uh, we have become a part of our environment. You know, we have a living biome of bacteria that has shifted over the years as the bacterial environment has shifted. In that same way, we have grown accustomed and our physiology has grown to be relatable to the environments around us. For instance, um, you know, we have an endocannabinoid system. I think that the part of the reason it's cannabis is such an effective medicine is because our body potentially evolved using this medicine for thousands of years. And now it's a part of us. And I think same goes for so many herbal remedies. And we're now just beginning to entertain the idea that maybe there, you know, uh, maybe there isn't craziness in the tribes of Amazon, the shamans there talking to the plants. Um, I found that supremely interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more, but I went to Peru with NUNM uh, for a trip under the wonderful Dr. Stansberry. Mm-hmm. And we got to travel with um, a couple and I guess meet and learn about plant medicine from a few different tribes in the Amazon jungle right out of Cusco. And, you know, it always used to blow my mind, like how do these small tribes in the middle of the jungle know that this remedy works for this, you know? What did they just have one unlucky guy that had to test out all the medicines? You know, that math doesn't add up. Eating you know, bark people... off trees and eating random right. poisonous plants. Oops. And once in a while, the, the poisonous plant gives you visions. And other times, right. it gives you visions that isn't poisonous. And those are the ones that we keep. <laughs> well, that's, that's a cumbersome way of figuring out how these medicines work, right? So I ask him, like, how do you guys know all this? Like, so much information about the flora and fauna around you. And they always a few of the people that I asked responded in a very calm and factual demeanor. We talked to the plants and mm. okay. So I went to that idea a bit further with one of the shamans who we spent and I got comfortable with. And he was like, yeah, you know, each plant has a song that is associated mm. with it. Hence the Icaros song from ayahuasca combination of plants. Um, but there is a song or resonance that is spoken from each plant that if you are a person who's lived in the middle of the jungle and understood the herbal context of the world around you they have a much easier time talking to the plants and that's why coming from a western society and seeing that being like you can't talk to the plants and get that information but they say it factual as if it's a simple thing because they were like i said kind of grew up in this environment um and understand and accept i think a lot of is a lot of the problem for westerners except that is a potential reality if there is a resonance to each plant that can speak to you and you are living in this world of plant medicine every day, you can potentially translate that resonance into here's what it is. Here's what it's useful for. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how they say they get the understanding of like, um, and one that comes to mind is interesting is Datura is a, the only cure that they know of for this extremely poisonous snake. I think it's called the Shishupi. Mm. And it kills you within minutes. You internally bleed. It's a horrible death. 
Um, but if you can manage to brew up a batch of Detura, uh, the strongest and most intense psychedelic that exists, and ingest it, you will live. And we spoke to this one person in the tribe, uh, maybe a, in his teenager years, that had this happen to him at a young age and had to run back to his tribe and have his mother prepare a Datura soup. And then he had to take this incredibly crazy psychedelic, but he didn't die because he had this medicine. That must have been a terrible experience, though. I've heard oh stories God, about I mean, Datura in general. It's yeah, not, it's not really necessarily by a snake and dying. positive type of hallucinations mm. <laughs> as it is, but that now is when you're dying from a snake bite. Be, um, outside of the context of snake bites and Shishupi <laughs> healing, I'm not sure Datura will be the first um, researched heavily psychedelic yeah, in the medical yeah, world because it's, it's really intense and I've never done it. Don't it's think interesting, though, because... Um, uh, in uh, Carlos Castaneda's book, uh, where he talks about Don Juan, uh, one of the m- main herbs that they used yeah. within their Shana tradition was Datura. But they had right. this the smoke, incredibly, right? yeah, they had this incredibly complex uh, system of like using it. They would first you would you know mm-hmm. take a piece of the root one day, the next you would take a piece of the plant, you would take a piece yeah. of this, then you would like plant it here, and you would do this. And then you know they didn't even ingest any of this stuff in any noticeable quantity right. until several days and even weeks of doing these several processes. And I wonder if, yeah. if somehow they, you know, got the body acclimated to it or desensitized to it. And then they prepare in a very particular way. So it's like these one, this one substance that could be a terrible experience for, for somebody who just uses it willy nilly can be right. a, a profoundly healing. If you know, First, if you have the proper cultural context, too, if you know the actual way to prepare it to get rid of mm-hmm. the things that are harmful, the toxic substances, and retain the things that are helpful, um, and then even just get your body used to it and not just jump into it uh, without having yeah. any planning or experience of it beforehand. I think that's a wonderful bridge into discussing the value of intention and a therapeutic environment. Um, if one were to look to these drugs and substances and herbs as healing modalities, um, in particular, a good way of exploring that thought is through ayahuasca, right? It's um, a mix of two different plants, Banisterius capi vine and Chacruna or some other DMT containing plant, which Another tangent from what you noted before, it's supremely interesting that every living plant and thing on earth contains a minuscule amount of DMT in it. Was the mm. something speaks behind that, I think. But the active ingredient in ayahuasca is DMT combined with an MAOI, which prevents it from breaking down as it typically does in its smoked state. Mm. So, um, you know, this is a brew that's made uh, conventionally or was typically used in the Amazon tribes uh, for thousands of years, they say. And how did they now get to a point where most of the tribes have a similar uh, traditional, the word I'm looking for, uh, environment or intention or protocols, you could even say that the shaman and the um, patient should abide by and respect in order to be safe and get the most out of the plant medicine. Um, And first, you know, I was lucky enough to have this experience in Peru 
And like you had mentioned before, there's a lot of preparing for a serious endeavor like this. You know, because it has an MAOI, you can't be consuming several foods or drugs which would could kill you. You know, it, you, mm -hmm. there are a lot of drugs which should not be combined with ayahuasca because it's dangerous because of the MAOI. So you have to have an understanding of that and you have to fast from several things which aren't just physical, but emotional. You're supposed to fast from sex for some time um, and alcohol to get yourself in this. I am doing this to heal myself point of view um, mm. and then once you are actually ready on the day to experience the medicine there's a shaman and I would say it's ill-advised to use this medicine without a shaman or someone who is very experienced with it um, because the shaman is so integral in one's experience um, and so that speaks to like what you were saying about the intention and the environment mm. that is comprised in therapy so uh, we were lucky enough to have a, a wonderful shaman who had been administering this plant medicine since he was 14, I believe. Uh, his first experience was when he was eight and hosted his oh, first wow. thing in his tribe at 11. And then at 14, went out to the public and was hosting this. And, you know, it, it was deeply entrenched into his culture's point of view. So, like, in similar into as, um, was it Mazateca um, in Mexico and how mushrooms are part of their society and their culture where they were before we ravaged it. Um, and it wasn't viewed as a too taboo thing. And it's not in uh, Peru where ayahuasca is ceremonies are taking place. You know, this is the one medicine that is used for treating almost every chronic condition. Um, the shaman said to me, you know, if you have, Diabetes, for instance, is one chronic condition that uh, is claimed to be treating very well. If you have diabetes, depression, addiction, um, mm. you know, some other malignancies uh, can be treated with multitude of herbs, but there's one that is always contained in it, and that is ayahuasca. And it doesn't necessarily directly work on your physiology uh, to heal you of some of these conditions like you would expect. So how do you benefit from a hormonal imbalance? like diabetes from something which we don't know directly works on the hormones um that's part of this deeper story which is very valuable to be explored so what is what's actually happening under the influence of ayahuasca in a controlled therapeutic shamanic setting that provides the platform for the body to heal itself or um you know opens up a new pathway for healing that the body wasn't previously experienced with and in my opinion that is the core factor in psychedelic medicine which separates it is it's um it is power to bring about novel thought patterns um and new algorithms of thinking uh, and when that happens the body can see and feel and know itself in a different way which prevents itself from being caught in whatever pathological pattern it was mm. the point about it being very culturally contextual the usage of these plants like this culture had it you know, this ceremony along with this plant were embedded in the culture and this other culture had this and what we're missing uh in western culture is we don't really have that 
except right. towards substances like alcohol, coffee. Those are like the right. cultural, culturally accepted substances for uh, altering the mind state, right? Because the right. whole premise is these plants alter the mind state and that's why they're used because they, uh, they're psychoactive. They change how you think, they change how you perceive. But in a, in a culture like ours where there's so much focus on always being, you know, in sympathetic drive, you know, the grind, yeah. get things done, being very energetic, very young, uh, mm-hmm. things like caffeine and coffee are very integral to the culture. And there's a kind of cultural, even mythos of, you know, caffeine and coffee. And, you know, there's people who are like coffee aficionados and then all the different brewing types and the smells and the beans. Right. Um, I look forward to the day that is happening with psychedelic mushrooms. And it's, you know, you'll ask a girl out on a date and, you know, you want to get a cup of coffee. There's the, there's this cultural context for this substance called coffee, which is a drug in the same way as anything else is. Um, and then, you know, at night, back, you know, pre-COVID times where uh, bars and scenes like that were more more active, uh, you know, you go and you imbibe this liquid and it changes your state of mind and there's, you know, music playing and it's like this bass drum beat, bum, 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 <laughs> and everyone's dancing. And it always strikes me as very reminiscent of shamanic cultures of, you know, yeah. the communal gathering together, imbibing some substance, dancing, singing, the kind of drum beat aspect of it. Although it's interesting, it typically doesn't have that holistic healing element in bars. It has more of the, you know, Dionysian uh, fun aspect, more right. of the pleasure aspect more rather mythic. than the deeper right. connection aspect. Um, so we have those substances within this culture. They're just different substances. And the interesting thing right. is those substances are so different than the psychedelic ones because uh, drinking, you know, tons of alcohol and dancing, it could be great and cathartic, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, heal you from, you know, your problems. It doesn't necessarily bring clarity to the mind or give you new insights. Um, Mm -hmm. and of course they're very dangerous. I mean, alcohol addiction is a serious problem, uh, in this country and in, in other countries, uh, and it's one of the few substances actually that you, if you rapidly discontinue, you can actually die from the withdrawal. Right. It's one you of the few known to known to all of humanity, a substance that you can actually die from the withdrawal. Like you have to yep. be careful, uh, even stopping the substance. It becomes such a, it becomes so ingrained in the body and such a right. you know, detrimental factor. So we have those substances, but yeah, you know, these alcohol, other substances... Tobacco. We have cannabis too in Oregon, which is and we have kind of, it has, cannabis has a kind of minorly psychoactive uh, effect in mm-hmm. comparison to these psychedelics. But when you do um, right. add the edible form, which goes through a different pathway, because when you ingest it, it, it goes through liver metabolism and creates another right. metabolite, which is more potent than THC, more psychedelic. That's mm-hmm. basically what we have here other than, you know, as far as legally speaking for altering consciousness. Uh, so cannabis is a step forward in that, in that sense, because it does offer people an opportunity to experience altered states of consciousness in a, you know, in a positive setting, but you know, the, the psychedelics are still, they're still to be seen how they integrate in the culture. And if this bill does, uh, go through, 
and they become available for therapeutic use, it's going to be incredibly interesting to see uh, the massive rippling effect that that'll yeah. have. And I think it'll be largely, I think it'll be largely beneficial. There, of course, some people there'll be some bad I, events with it. It's as yeah. with any medication. I mean, as with you know, any in, medication in naturopathic school, we learn about uh, you know different pharmaceuticals. And uh, I'm studying for my uh, board exams in, in a week. So I've been studying a lot of different uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, pharmacology. And you look at these substances and they're, you have to be careful of like how you dose them, how much you give them. You have to be careful when you're mixing them together. You have to be careful if someone has another condition you give it. So like the medicines yeah. we use already have an inherent danger in them. It and it's the same thing with everything. Psychedelics in and of themselves they have inherent dangers and the whole reason to research and learn an experiment is mm-hmm. so we can find out what the dangers are. So we know, and then we can use them, you know, safely and for healing and for therapeutics and have right. less of those events. Right. And it's so wonderful that we have somehow through wonderful organizations like MAPS, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies opened up our ability to now look into medicinally, um, statistically how these drugs work. We can quantitatively have data to show that um, LSD and psilocybin have statistically more people can leave addiction and depression after a single treatment of them. Um, And so uh, I think really our main barrier to entry right now is how these drugs are branded and I am confident that with the passing or even just the proposal of the legislation like has happened in Oregon, that opens up and brings attention to this changing paradigm right now. And as we begin to recontextualize some of these taboo substances for what they were when their party situation came out, uh, we'll be able to understand more about how they can actually help us. And, you know, even still we have a contextualized view of uh, the drugs which are legal and um, regulated cannabis, tobacco, uh, alcohol. You know, we see alcohol as, of course, it's still curious and dangerous, probably the most out of any drug, in my opinion. Uh, and there are still healing values, you know, like uh, the cardiovascular value of having a glass of red wine every so mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. Um, but they pale in comparison to the risks and adverse events. So there was this person, uh, I believe he was the, um, the person who was in charge of, uh, what would be the equivalent of the DEA in Britain. Uh, he was the board member who was supposed to bring statistical information on how they should schedule and treat their drug regulation. And he put a study out uh, that was he was fired for uh, that compared the relative risks of all illegal and most popular intoxicating drugs. Um, you know, the top tier were alcohol, heroin, methamphetamine, uh, and then it went down the line. And the lowest one was psilocybin mushrooms. So like you said, as we begin to explore medical value in any treatment, there will be adverse events, but what we can expect from mushrooms is that it would be 
orders of magnitude less adverse events than some of the drugs which we are mm. currently treating people with every day, like amphetamine, which is Adderall. You take out one carbon group or you add one carbon group to amphetamine, it is methamphetamine. And we are giving this substance to young children every day as their brains morph and become attached to their current state. We're giving them amphetamine every day. Isn't there a more um, practical, sustainable solution for some of our mental problems like that? And I think as we begin to see things in a different way, um, we will come into understanding of many new treatments for uh, pathologies that we would not expect. For instance, um, the FDA had just approved, as you mentioned, ketamine as a treatment for major depressive disorder um, that is not responsive to SSRIs mm -hmm. or um, needs to be effect immediately. So you have a person present that says, I'm suicidal, I have no time. You can't wait 14 days for SSRIs to kick in. You can't talk them out of it. Um, a useful adjunct therapy is ketamine uh, infusions, which they're now using. And last, I think it was on average 10 to 14 days from a 130 milligram intramuscular infusion in a controlled setting. So you would go into the doctor and what the FDA has um, validated through studies which have statistically shown uh, this 30 milligram infusion of ketamine can statistically remove major depressive disorder in a matter of minutes um, and last for a significant amount of time. And it's not, it doesn't have contraindications or, um, you know, very many medical adverse events that take place in this way. Uh, but it's interesting because previously our understanding of what depression was, was maybe an imbalance of serotonin right, or dopamine, and ketamine actually works, uh, it's an antagonist for your NMDA receptors, mm -hmm. uh, which are, you know, involved in thought and uh, your association with self. So um, how you see yourself, how you can objectively view your state of being under the influence of ketamine is valuable to your brain state. So Although it doesn't directly affect serotonin or dopamine, it changes your thought form in a way that still is effective in reducing depression. So how we see what we previously thought of as understood or slightly understood pathologies is also changed by our understanding of the treatment now. So like I said, how psychedelics are the um, telescope to astronomy, astronomy um, in a psychedelic sense, or in a pharmacological sense, how are we going to use that? Are we going to hopefully peer through this telescope and see a massive value for our species and the medical paradigm and mm -hmm. really shift our perspective towards one that is open and empathetic to people in that situation, I think. Mm -hmm. For someone who has MDMA and has received, or has PTSD and has received MDMA treatment, to hear from those that he's maybe close with, or to see you know, a group of public people talking about how MDMA is a party drug and no use for it, that's got to be not so fun for a person in a place like that, right? They mm. would like to hear that their experiences are validated, and the more people that do experience 
a benefit from these substances, the more they will be validated. Yeah, and I think um, the the kind of cultural revolution of the late 60s and 70s, it gave a lot of insights into what psychedelics could be and what they can't be. So they're not a cure-all yeah. for all of society's problems or the world's woes. It's not as simple as, you know, everyone just takes them and everything will be fine. Uh, right. There's dangerous aspects to them too, uh, especially for people who are very susceptible to uh, different, you know, pathologies of the minds and uh, right schizophrenia and bipolar disorder potentially. Exactly. Uh, but what we're seeing in the kind of reemergence is, I think there's going to be a more conscious and wise approach to them and and seeing them as they are, which is as you were um, talking about as tools. And how do right. you use and that? I think tool we've seen that in cannabis. For? Mm-hmm. You know, like cannabis also is a fairly not perceived as a fairly benign intoxicating substance. However, it can be not so benign and it can be scary. And you know, it, especially if you're ingesting cannabis, you can overdose on it quite easily. Um, the means in which cannabis was legalized was through. Uh, public support, rebranding of how dangerous the drug actually is, like we were just talking about. Um, statistically supported studies on its value medicinally and, um, you know, exploratively. And now we've got to this place where we can and are starting to finally be real about cannabis. Uh, yes, it is uh, holds value in anti-inflammatory sense right but yeah it can be dangerous or it can be um misused and we're now having an honest discourse finally in cannabis about um you know where its healing world is and where we need to uh take mm-hmm. heed when exploring the medicine so the uh, that conversation i think is one we will now begin to see and i've already right. started to begin to see and psychedelics and plant medicine. So because there's that um, often repeated statement by uh, people who I I would say overuse cannabis. Like they're just yeah. old, you know they're basically always high. They're all day every day, yep. and they'll say something along those lines of, "Well, it's it's healing and it's medicine." My question right. is, medicine for what? Like medicines are for something. They're not. Yes. Like, and in that way, they're using always it as take a symptomatic forever. treatment. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's not. It's not a nature cure. They're not treating the root cause of whatever it is. Maybe it is satiating whatever yeah. you know imbalances within them, but that is not treating the root cause. Um, and I think that's problematic, honestly, in the cannabis culture right now, and is not helping our movement in the psychedelic yeah. culture. But yeah, it is very real, and um, how real we can be about the intoxicating values of these substances is important so they can be potentially regulated and utilized one day in a medical context um because if we were to just say you know cannabis is fine and everybody can have as much as they want and they won't have a problem um that is how drugs become back regulated and enforced uh to a more stringent degree that prevents our exploration of them, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think we're beginning to become real about psychedelics now, and we're beginning to see that we don't really understand exactly the mechanisms for how so many of them work. Uh, like I was saying, ayahuasca is a bit cryptic, um, 
But even on a deeper level, I think a lot of tryptamines in particular, uh, one of the root molecules of the class of psychedelics, um, bring about a change in your energetic profile or your aura, right? What you are made of is not purely physical. Um, and so now we're starting to explore exactly how your aura affects your physicality. Um, mm. You know, Chinese medicine is entirely based on energetic manipulation. How do you move certain energies in your body um, through herbs or acupuncture that affect your physiology? And I think that we will begin to utilize psychedelics as a poignant medicine for altering our energetic profile, which will translate to um, physiological healing. And I think that is a beautiful time to be alive right now in terms of what we're understanding about energy and how that translates to our physiology. But it's a very untold story right now. So how our energy actually looks and behaves and then mm. furthermore responds to psychedelic medicine is um, a bit foggy right now, but the promise behind them is immense because they're sustainable solutions uh, that go really at the root because mm -hmm. before your body is even matter it is energy mm -hmm. and if you can really treat deeper and deeper back then you can really hit a sustainable root cause solution mm. so let's forward to our incorporation of plant psychedelic medicine into an energetic space as well you know like mm -hmm. reiki chinese medicine qigong how I don't think that's been under-researched in, in my opinion. Um, how do psychedelics influence and potentiate that healing process? Right, right. I think a lot of the shamanic rituals in general, they tend to focus on the kind of meditative aspect of it. So those are those traditions, but what about all these new traditions of, you know, mindfulness meditation and uh, Qigong, as you were saying, what happens when they get utilized? And it's a incredibly common experience for someone who doesn't even believe in energy in a psychedelic experience they feel it so they can't not believe it it becomes like mm -hmm. an apparent experience so on the topic yeah. of experiences what have your uh experiences with these medicines really taught you what insights any particular stories you have about specific experiences you had how long we have um, uh, a long one. I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, uh, I guess first, just because we were just discussing it, I'm not sure I was completely sold into the esoteric, um, unexplainable magic nature of our universe until I was confronted with psychedelics. You know, mm -hmm. this is the way it is. The world's matter. You die and you're done. Um, and then, like I said, um, psychedelics provided me a platform of openness and literally the way they work um rewiring neural pathways um gave me insight into how potentially there is a deeper story that might not be explained by the dogmatic scientific enterprise right now and uh that was the beginning of the healing cascade that came from psychedelics with me was i began to think well maybe there is a deeper story than I understand. And, um, you know, in addition to that, I have seen, I guess it's really different for each substance and each person. But personally, I have um, noticed 
immense benefits in my thought forms, in my questioning my own self. Uh, is this a healthy manner in which I'm living? And is this sustainable um, through the use of uh, LSD and psilocybin? I think they deliver similar lessons. I would say psilocybin has a bit more of an organic, um, mm. heartfelt vibe. Mm -hmm. And um, LSD may be a bit more pragmatic, but they both have truly opened up my person in um, how I track and view my growth as a person, physically, mentally, emotionally. It has made me review myself and take important um, data into how I'm living in the world into how I might want to further progress my life, you know? Um, and I think that is part of the reason that they have been so effective uh, in treating addiction is that they provide a means for understanding how your current situation is not sustainable and that there are other thought patterns that are out there. You know, it's um, common in uh, addiction treatment centers to, I know Smart Recovery is one of the ones that uses a an algorithm that challenges your previous bias and thought on a particular subject and how you misunderstand that subject leads you to act in an irrelevant or unsubstantiated response, right? So you respond to a certain stimulus in an inappropriate manner because your bias on that stimulus is untrue. You know, um, for instance, go into work, you think everyone hates you, so you're not going to talk, you're going to be holding back when um, the, the inference that everyone does not like you, and the reason for you holding back was never true in the first place. Mm. Psychedelics, we have now shown statistically have a capacity for opening up that view of your own biases. So that's been incredibly um, valuable and useful to my progression. And then physically, the anti-inflammatory and um, how would I describe it? Consciousness enhancing aspects of psychedelics have really provided a, I am fairly confident I would not be feeling as good as I am in my own body with my spondylolisthesis and whatever's going on musculaturally uh, if I had not taken lessons from some of these substances. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of people will talk about and try to describe how connected they feel with themselves and with everything out of the influence of LSD or psilocybin or what have you. And that awareness, I think an under like visceral awareness of the body um, both provides a conscious and unconscious platform for healing. Um, mm. So there were moments, you know, I'm, I'm very into yoga and uh, teach yoga and things like that. But the actual, like, true understanding of my body came after I used psychedelics. Yoga deepens that. Um, mm. And they are both tools, you know. They both are the shovel that allows us to dig deeper into our understanding of our physiology. And some psychedelics do that 
viscerally without really much work or intention like we were talking about necessary they show you the parts of your body and if your body and mind can unconsciously understand where pathology is you know one of the tenets of naturopathic medicine the body knows how to heal itself and is intelligent so mm-hmm. providing showing the body all right here check this out this is where it hurts um and you know breathe into this be aware of this spot maybe an energetic lockup or an emotional um tension just the awareness of that on a conscious or unconscious level opens things up so i've noticed that capacity very strongly in you know lsd psilocybin and ketamine as well i look forward to seeing how um the rebranding of ketamine as well as fit into this psychedelic revolution renaissance right now i think it's probably the least accepted of the psychedelics in a medical context because it is does have a potential for uh physiological damage if you use it all day every day for sure it's not healthy for you um but used medicinally i think there's far more value in just treating major depressive disorder like we have now figured out on the fda Mm. um we, I think there is a strong value, at least as I can vouch for, in its capacity to um, allow us to explore parts of our body which maybe were too painful to get to, right? Kind of ketamine is an anesthetic. Um, mm. And then lastly, spiritually, uh, have really tough to disambiguate or describe you know, words are blunt instruments when it comes to talking about something as organic as your energy and your spiritual soul body. But I definitely feel as though my spiritual understanding and my place with myself spiritually has orders of magnitude progressed since I've utilized these medicines. And, you know, some of the deeper work you do on ayahuasca can be very cryptic and esoteric seeming like what does this soul body have to do with me what's my karma from past lives have to do with my space now um but i think there is a understanding of people who might participate in these medicines already that working with understanding and exploring your spiritual body through the use of these medicines Mm. has a rippling effect into your physiology your physical body your emotional and Mm. mental well-being you know, Terrence McKenna once said that the fundamental function of psychedelics is boundary dissolution. It yeah. removes it removes boundaries of, you know, this is me and everything else. This is my environment. This is another person. Or, you know, boundaries that we set up in our own minds of like rigid ways of thinking or right. ideas or, you know, boundaries that... Um, that culture and society sets up of, you know, separating people out based on what they look like or, you know, what job they have or all these different uh, conceptual boundaries. And what it does, it seems to dissolve those boundaries out and let you at least for some period of time experience what reality is uninterpreted without the boundaries and yeah. see how strange it actually is, how mysterious. And that experience alone of that that's even possible to experience mm-hmm. that, that that kind of experience is possible for human consciousness. That is a revelation in and of itself that 
you can never undo because once you see that state, you see, oh, what I call like reality and the world right. is really just this one narrow mode of consciousness that, you know, that people exist in, uh, you know, cause they go to this job and then they drink some coffee and then they go home and they watch TV and right. like this narrow band of consciousness, but you can travel outside of that band of consciousness through psychedelics or through, you know, ritual meditation, through music, through dance, through being in nature and yeah. it shifts. And it reminds you that, that, that it's possible that if you feel like you're isolated, you feel all alone, that, you're just in this narrow way of perceiving and it's incredibly difficult to bring oneself out, but psychedelic medicines at least offer a potential catalyst for that process because they show you beautifully said that's possible. So, you know, why isn't that possible while I'm in ordinary consciousness? So right. they show you what you can reach without them. Ultimately, I think would be the goal of psychedelic medicines is, you know, that that's possible. So now you figure out how do I actually live in that state without it? Mm-hmm. I'd say one of my favorite books I love to recommend to people is called The Book of Not Knowing, mm-hmm. uh, essentially describing the value of living in a space of not knowing because everything we are is a conjecture of what we previously understood about the world. And then you have something happen to you and you respond with bias like we were talking about before. And then you add a layer of what you perceive as yourself that may be based on a false conjecture. And then how do you get below that? false conjecture of yourself if you are living within it you know uh i don't know who discovered water but i know it wasn't a fish you know we are constantly immersed in this perception of self how are you to escape from that perception of self Mm. and dissolving the boundaries of your own ego is doing exactly that and to describe it in a medical context robert and carthart harris has done a beautiful job of showing this stepping out of yourself and stepping into your new self maybe um, can be described through the deactivation or um, lessening of activity in the default mode network, right? This is Mm -hmm. the default mode in which your conscious mind relates to the world around you. You have ruminating thoughts that repeat because this is, you're in the water. That's how your fish is going to perceive it, right? But um, when psychedelics lower the activity in your default mode network bam now i don't i'm out of the water i'm fish out of water i see what's really going on here and i can redefine myself without those false conjectures from something maybe a traumatic event that happened to me um and so you know trauma and releasing old holding patterns is valuable with mdma it's also valuable and potentially um accessible through other psychedelics lsd psilocybin EMT Academy, and they all have that similar motif behind it, I think. Mm. And I'm very much excited for witnessing the unfolding of this new medical paradigm and psychedelic renaissance. Me as well. I think that's the perfect place to, to uh, finish this off. And uh, yeah. I'd like to, like to thank you, uh, Frank, for, uh, thank you, for being on the Herbal Hour and speaking about the herbs of changing the mind and soul, which have been used for thousands of years, which are just as much of a part of herbalism as any other plant is, and will continue to discover and uh, 
see what the future holds in terms of using them therapeutically. I certainly hope that that bill goes through because I think that would bring immense benefit, especially using it in yeah. uh, psilocybin in such a controlled setting where you have a therapist in front of you and you can really have someone work through the issues with you. Uh, yeah. It eliminates pretty much any of the ne- negative consequences that can come right, from the good. more, you know, yeah, exactly. Cause you, ha- at least you have that feeling that you're safe and that, they're trained to be able to deal with, you know, if something start going down a bad place, they're right. trained to be able to let's explore that. Let's because yeah. the resistance to it is usually what caused that terrible trip. But thank you, Frank, for, uh, for being on the show. And oh, it's been my pleasure, my friend. I look forward to uh, utilizing some of these methods in my practice one day. And I am uh, excited for your practice developing, man. I'm proud of you. Thank you very so, much. Thank you for having me, man. Awesome. Thank you, Frank.